You're listening to Pigeon Post on CICQ 92.3 FM Tourism Radio, coming at you from Admiralty House Communications Museum in Mount Pearl, Newfoundland. Hello and welcome to Pigeon Post, a production of Admiralty House Communications Museum and Folklore 6740 Public Folklore Course at Memorial University. I'm Allison. And I'm Shannon. Our public folklore class has been divided into groups to explore different topics relating to the history of Admiralty House Museum and Mount Pearl in general. So today, Allison and I will be talking a little bit about how the Admiralty House Museum grounds were previously used as a farm by the Parsons family for over 50 years. So settle in for a half hour of romance, whimsy, and quaint farming stories. We hope that you have as much fun learning about this family and their farm as we did. So before we dive into the farming on the site in particular, I think probably it's best that we quickly go over the history of farming in Mount Pearl in general. I completely agree. And first, I just want to make a quick note that a lot of this information is coming from Leslie Marie Walsh's A History of Mount Pearl, which has been a really helpful source in conducting our research. So in case some of you didn't know, Mount Pearl was first settled as a farming community. But the prohibition of farming in the year 1670 meant that most of Mount Pearl's early settlers were actually farming illegally. Wait, why was farming prohibited? Well, authorities worried that self-sufficient farmers posed a threat to merchants since they relied less and less on imported food supplies. But this ban was eventually lifted in the early 19th century when St. John's and Mount Pearl were faced with the threat of famine. Uh, Yeah, that definitely outweighs any worries of how farming would negatively impact merchants. Exactly. And then the new governor, Sir Thomas Cochrane, began really promoting farming in the area by granting land to those who could farm. And this formally settled Mount Pearl in the process. So was it men who were doing the labor-intensive field work and women tending to more domestic duties in the house? No, actually, since most of the men were usually fishing at sea, the agricultural duties were considered women's work. They grew a variety of vegetables and oats and tended to domesticate cattle and pigs. Oh, that's really neat. Uh, The Parsons family was among some of those early farmers in Mount Pearl. Their first farm, called Bellevue Farm, was on the south side of Old Placentia Road, which Heber Parsons acquired in his marriage to Lillian in the late 1800s. This farm was adjacent to the property where Admiralty House is now, and was operated by the British Admiralty until 1924. So Heber and Lillian ended up having five children. Marie, Margaret, Hector, Gwendolyn, and Olive. They all became very friendly with the staff at the wireless station across the road. In a letter dated September 2nd, 1918 from W.L. Grant, Vice Admiral to His Excellency, the Governor of Newfoundland, he writes, quote, A Mr. and Mrs. Parsons living near the wireless station have been most kind in providing suitable amusement and society for the men belonging to the wireless station. The actions of Mr. and Mrs. Parsons has undoubtedly contributed towards their happiness and has probably had a steadying effect upon them, end quote. 
The following month, Heber Parsons wrote a reply to the governor, saying how much pleasure it afforded him and his wife, quote, to be able to help brighten and make happy the lives of those bright, intelligent young men who are far away from home and friends, end quote. And we know that it wasn't just Heber and Lillian who became close with the wireless station staff. In fact, two of these eligible bachelors became romantically involved with daughters Margaret and Gwendolyn. Margaret soon married warrant officer George Durbin, while Gwendolyn was wed to petty officer Charles Ben Scott, and together they had three children, Clement, Elizabeth, and John. And what I find really heartwarming is that once the Parsons family acquired the former wireless station and turned it into their farmhouse, the newlyweds moved in too. So in a way, they never really left. That's really special. (laughs) And let's not forget Heber and Lillian's three other children. Records state that Marie, their eldest daughter, was actually a spinster. Hector, their only son, married a young woman named Madeline Chansey, and together they had a son named George. The youngest, Olive, married Dickie Bunt, and they had one child named Douglas. And at one point, pretty much all of them lived in this house together. So it was three generations under one roof. Gwendolyn and C.B. Scott were in the East Apartment, while Heber and Lillian had the West. Hector and Madeline's quarters were through the middle, and either Margaret and George Durbin or Olive and Dick Bunt had the hospital wings at the rear of the house. But the layout of the home was definitely influenced by its past use by the British Admiralty. Before the wireless station was constructed in 1915, the site of the Parsons Farm was an open, sparsely populated farming area. Once built, the wireless transmission station was operated by the British Admiralty until 1924. The property was for sale for two years before the Parsons and Friends purchased it, and the purchase included 40 acres, two roods, and 32 perches. What are roods and perches? Well, they're English terms of measurement used in land surveying that we don't really hear too often today. Oh, okay. Uh, The property was eventually sold with existing structures associated with the wireless station. From what we understand, these new lands joined their old property, and the whole area was known as Bellevue Farm. So along the front of the property, off Old Placentia Road, is where the structure we know as Admiralty House Museum stands today. It was originally built to house the crew's quarters, and the wireless station operated out of a building beside it. In the Parsons' time, the crew's quarters became the family residence. There was a lot of change in the building's exterior appearance. Uh, We could say that it shifted from a simplicity connected to its military function to more of a rustic, rambling farmhouse. The building beside the farmhouse was divided into two sections in the 1930s. One half continued transmission activities, while the other half was converted into a dairy barn and hayloft, which was later torn down. A 1938 site plan shows that the dairy barn included a pasteurizing plant and several hen houses. But we also know that there were other outbuildings around the site, such as storage sheds. In terms of the landscape, we know there used to be an old dirt road that ran alongside the house, and nearby was a big field referred to as Parsons Meadow, as well as a river called South River. So over the years, the site was planted up with a wide range of trees. A city survey from the 90s shows us that there were a wide variety of trees and ages. Um, But today, most most noticeable is the apple tree that's tucked between the two buildings. You can actually see it from when you look outside the museum window. Now let's move inside of the residence. After purchase by the Parsons Group, 
The building was converted into five living spaces, but one apartment in the wings was knocked down, leaving four. George Parsons describes the house's interior of the 1940s. It had between 18 and 20 rooms in total. This included a huge sitting room, large dining room, a small office for Hector, a bathroom, kitchen, bedroom, and another bathroom, kitchen, a second sitting room, a furnace room out back, as well as a space for grating eggs, a room where George sold Duval milking equipment at one time, a pump house room, and a wooden veranda that went around most of the house. The front doors faced Old Placentia Road and were hardly ever used. Everyone used the back door, so when you came in from the barn, you'd hang, you'd come in back and hang your dirty clothes on the porch and head on inside. So the building was originally coal heated, but the Parsons converted from coal heating to an oil furnace when they took over the building. And because the CBC transmitter continued operating on site, it required electricity, and this meant that the Parsons benefited by also having it in their home. George Parsons remembers his father Hector saying, Well, if you're going past the house, why don't you hook us up too? They always had running water and electricity, in contrast with many of the surrounding farms and cottages that didn't have such luxuries for the time. So when the Parsons first purchased the land, there were three large radio towers on the grounds. Uh, They were all eventually removed because they were posing such a danger to the neighboring properties. The first was removed in 1938, the second in 1954, and the last one in 1955. Before the poles were taken down, children would actually play around them, get inside the poles, and try to climb up them. You can obviously see the danger. So Penny Sims, the niece of Hector and Madeline, remembers the day that the pole was going to be dismantled. Whoever was responsible for dismantling the pole had given them a specific time and a warning to get out of the way, but the pole ended up coming down much earlier. And her father happened to be in the hen house collecting eggs. It's a wonder he wasn't killed, she says. No kidding. So let's take a minute to introduce Penny. Her interview with Admiralty House Museum has been of great use for Shannon and I in our research of the Bellevue Farm. She is the niece of Hector and Madeline Parsons and has shared some really rich memories of life living at the farm, most of which revolve around the heart of the home, which was the kitchen. So I think Penny spent most of her early life on the Bellevue Farm, uh, where her father father worked. She fondly recalls how good of a place it was to grow up until her marriage at age 21. And at this time, the area was a really tight-knit community, with even more family living in the surrounding area, like her aunt and uncle, Edna Parsons and Charlie Sims, who had a cattle farm nearby on Heavy Tree Road. The Parsons even allowed another relative, named Mr. Morley Parsons, to build his summer cottage on their land, so it's no surprise that they were known in the community for their generosity. That's right, and because of this, there were always plenty of activities and social events going on at the farm, and really just a lot of happy, quaint memories, too. That actually reminds me of my favorite memory shared by Penny during her interview with Admiralty House Museum. She talked extensively about something as simple as getting milk for her morning cereal. Here's the quote. I remember in the mornings, you'd get up and get your cornflakes for breakfast. You'd get the milk from down in the barn, but you'd what they call scald it on a stove. It didn't necessarily have to come to a boil, not a rolling boil, but it'd be left there perhaps most of the day, just on simmer. And then in the mornings, the thick cream would be on it. Oh my gosh, 
scoop that off and put it over your cornflakes <laughs> and some milk and sugar that I miss, end quote. And every time I read that, I always end up craving a big bowl of cereal. I can see that. Well, I personally really loved her memories of baking cakes with her Aunt Madeline, who she seemed to be really close with. Uh, but she also talked extensively about all the different animals on the farm. So as you can imagine, the main purpose of the farm was as a dairy. Uh, they had 60 cows that needed to be milked every morning and evening. And according to Penny, there was one cow who used to lead the rest. Her name was Swiss. So apparently each cow had their own spot in the barn that they just knew. And any cow that got out of formation was made aware by some other cow and pushed out of the way. We also know that they had chickens for eggs and poultry. And there were several dog personalities on the farm too. Lady and Smut were both English setters, and there was also another dog named Rover. And Aunt Madeline had a little dog named Spot who didn't actually adventure outside of the house. And in terms of gardening, the Bellevue Farm was one of the few large-scale vegetable farms in Mount Pearl in the 1930s, uh, along with Lester's Farm and the Demonstration Farm. It's unknown exactly what was grown, but carrots have been mentioned a couple times. Hay was also a major part of farm operations. George Parsons describes how they changed techniques for moving hay as new technology became available, saying that his father got a hay baler when they first became available, and then a conveyor to fill up the front and back of the barn. So you had to be really careful so as not to store damp hay. As fast as you could bale it, you had to put it out of the weather. If it rained on them, on them the bales would be spoiled. Very true. Hector also embraced technology elsewhere on the farm. As George puts it, horses went by the wayside when we obtained machinery to plow. We eventually owned three tractors. And surprisingly, uh, aerial photographs from 1948 uh, from the Mount Pearl Planning Department show us that most of the land wasn't actually used as farmland, since most of the area appears to be in a state of natural vegetation. Let's talk about some activities inside the house. So much of what went on here revolved around food production and consumption, from the business to daily subsistence to social happenings of the family. Penny can remember baking with her aunt Madeline Parsons, and she describes making boiled frosting using an electric mixer. Uh, this is definitely a novelty for the times. She can also remember making a vanilla and chocolate cake that came out checkered when you cut into it. According to Penny, Madeline had patience for her kitchen experiments that her mother perhaps did not. Of course, she'd always bring half a cake home for her mother. And Penny's cakes became so popular in the neighborhood that neighbors began requesting that she bake them a cake every Saturday. Other former residents of the neighborhood recall coming over to the farm for visits, usually based in making and enjoying food, either a boil up on Sundays or a quick stop in for tea and coffee and some remember using the field for Sunday school picnics. Apparently, the Parsons welcomed visitors with open arms, stopping their work to give them treats like biscuits and lime juice. Nice. So we're getting towards the end of the Bellevue Farm story. Farm operations came to an end toward the 1970s. Hector died in 1972, leaving his estate completely to Madeline. She sold the property and original farm to the Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Corporation in July of 1973. 
And there was some conflict after the sale. A relative named Morley Parsons sought compensation for the summer cottage that he'd built on the property. We think that Hector had given Morley permission to build on the property, but never actually any legal entitlement to the land. And because there was no agreement or deed recovered, it was torn down in the 1980s. We also see that James Lester of Lester's Farms purchased the hay remaining on the property, paying $15 a ton for 25 tons of hay. And in 1973, the property was converted into office space and a tree nursery. The Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Corporation moved in and used the building until 1988. After they moved out, it really fell into disrepair until it eventually became the Admiralty House Communications Museum that we know today. Parsons Meadow subdivision was developed as part of the Federal and Provincial Land Assembly scheme in the 1980s by the Housing Corporation in recognition of this pioneering family. And this honor was not in vain, as the family contributed so much to the development of the farming industry in Mount Pearl and are remembered for their generosity and welcoming nature. Their generosity was first noted during World War I, as we mentioned before, and it continues to be reflected on in the museum's exhibits. The letter's actually on display, and it's a testament to the kind spirit of the family. The farm affected family and neighbors. Penny's experience growing up on the farm influenced the rest of her life. She admits it broke her heart when the farm was sold, but she went on to do some farming of her own. And aside from the family personalities of the Parsons, the farm landscape figured into the daily lives of those living nearby. The Mount Pearl Oral History Project contains many memories of people cutting through the property, picnicking in the meadow, or even making a day out of visiting the animals. So you can see that the farm really shaped the movements of Mount Pearl residents in and around the space. This was a relatively brief chapter in the history of the site, about only 50 years. But the life of the property as a farm was so drastically different from its previous existence as a wireless station. When the site functioned as a wireless station, the activities that went on in there were really contained within the walls of the structures. But once taken over by the Parsons, that plain uniform structure was transformed into a family home. Today, you can hardly tell that the Admiralty House Museum was once a farm. Really, there's few tangible hints as to its past. But if you find yourself in the neighborhood, take a step back and take it all in. Try to envision the old dirt road, listen for the cows mooing from out back the barn, or maybe you'll even be able to imagine the smells of cooking wafting out the open window and a farm-raised Parsons dinner waiting for you inside. If you would like to find out more, visit our website, www.admiraltymuseum.ca and we're on social media at Admiralty Museum. You can also subscribe to Pigeon Post on Apple Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye.